Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 404 with Professor Michael A. Roberto. You might recognize that name because I've mentioned it a couple times in discussing one of our sponsors, The Great Courses Plus, and how he's got some great courses on there. Plus, well, so here he is, chat with us. So you're going to learn, one, the six mindsets blocking your creativity, two, the advantage of putting your idea out there in its early stages, and three, best ways to spark extra creative ideas. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F404. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, you can check out some cool stuff, including some extra features on the, the podcast drop-down menu of the navigation bar. So that includes every single episode tagged by both the topic and the competency covered, some favorite episodes also labeled A, B, C, D, E, F in between episode zero and one in your podcast podcast player and some other goodies. So check that out over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Michael's story. Michael Roberto is the trustee professor of management at Bryant University. He's served for six years on the faculty at Harvard Business School prior to that. His research focuses on how people solve problems and make decisions. He's a best-selling author of case studies and several books. He's created courses on The Great Courses Plus, He's developed a number of innovative multimedia simulations for students, including the Everest Leadership and Team Simulation. His latest book is called Unlocking Creativity. So huge thanks to Michael for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us, and huge thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here is Michael. Mike, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. It's great to be with you today. Well, I'd love to, to start maybe early on in your life and hear about your childhood dream as it relates to Monday Night Football. I love this. People ask me this. So what did you want to be when you grew up? And I said, my gosh, believe it or not, I wanted to be Howard Cosell's successor. I grew up listening to Don Meredith, Frank Gifford, and Howard Cosell doing Monday Night Football. And I thought, I could do that, you know, and uh, that didn't quite work out. But, you know, some would say there's some similarities between being a professor and, and being a color commentator. So was it the specific love of football or, or something about his style in particular that resonated with you? I mean, I do love football. I am a fan. I know the rest of the country probably doesn't want to hear this of the six time Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots. Uh, sorry, Pete. But no, I honestly, I loved the Meredith Gifford and. Cosell just had this 
rather odd sort of but amazing chemistry, right? Meredith would start singing and Cosell was super serious and Gifford was the former player. It was just this kind of real mix that, I don't know, I just loved. And back then, Monday Night Football was a major event. I was lucky if my parents would let me stay up to halftime, right, and then send me to bed. So that's probably why. It was kind of a thing. Oh, yeah, that's fun. That's fun. Well, I want to hear a little bit about one of your latest things, which is your book, Unlocking Creativity. What's the main message here? The main message, Pete, is that I talk to companies and say, the question around creativity and innovation, which I think they all want more of it. Many of them feel they desperately need more of it. The question is, well, why don't you have enough creativity in your organization? What stands in the way? And I say, you know, do you have a people problem or a situation problem? And uh, I don't think it's a people problem. I think there's plenty of creative talent in organizations. It's a situation problem, meaning there's something in the environment in these firms and these enterprises that is inhibiting the creativity of these very talented people that are already there. And so the, the job of the leader is to clear away these obstacles, these paths. And the, the obstacles I focus on are, are not things like bureaucracy and hierarchy, though they are obstacles, but instead a set of mindsets that I think are getting in the way of creativity in organizations. You mentioned six in particular mindsets. Could you orient us to each of those six and, and how we can escape? First mindset is the linear mindset. We're taught many times in school to approach problem solving in a very linear way. Research and analysis, the generation of options, the choice of a course of action, and then the execution of that plan. But the creative process is fundamentally nonlinear. It involves a fair amount of iteration. Great creative ideas don't just drop from the sky like a bolt of lightning. They often emerge through a, a challenging process of trial and error and of getting feedback from customers or users and iterating. It's nonlinear. And unfortunately, we don't really like to iterate. And so that linear mindset, trying to force things through a very linear process, is the first obstacle I talk about in the book. I'd love to get your take. You say we don't like to iterate, and maybe that's because we're impatient. We want a result, whether that's revenue or, or, or something right away. What are some of your pro tips for iterating quickly instead of investing a, a boatload of resources into something and then being disappointed months later when it's not quite hitting the mark? I think one of the big things is getting comfortable with this idea. Of, I had a chance to interview Ed Catmull for the book, the longtime president of Pixar and then head of Disney Pixar Animation. He talks about this idea of letting people call your baby ugly, you know, which I love the phrase. <laughs> it's very visceral. I have a one-year-old. I, I don't like that idea. <laughs> the way I like to interpret what he means is when you have that new baby and you're a new parent, you are really careful about unveiling the baby to the world because you want everyone to say your baby's handsome or beautiful. You don't want anyone to call your baby ugly. But the key to the creative process is to get your idea out there raw, early, so that you can get feedback. You need to be willing to let people call your baby ugly so you can make the baby prettier. That's hard for us to do. We don't like feedback. Uh, we fall in love with our original idea. Psychologists call this the sunk cost trap, right? We throw good money after bad because we fall in love with what we've already invested a lot of time and energy. And it's difficult to iterate for a variety of these reasons. We look for data that might confirm what we already believe instead of being open to perhaps disconfirming feedback or data, right? So getting that baby out there, I know it's hard to think of it that way, but it's a powerful, powerful image, isn't it? Letting people call your baby ugly. Okay, you're putting out an early version in terms of like a prototype or a concept or a pitch and getting some trusted advisors to poke all sorts of holes and, and then you can iterate and make it better. So, so, so very nice. And Pete, it helps to put more than one idea in front of them because it turns out there's some research suggesting that people will be more candid with you 
if you ask them, which do you like better, A, B, or C, versus if you say, do you like A? Mm. They're hesitant to say they don't like it because they don't want to crush your feelings. So if you give them some choices, here's a few rough ideas. They can compare and contrast them. You're more likely to get productive feedback, by the way. That is brilliant. You know, I think I've, I've known that, but I haven't heard it articulated and I haven't used it with consistency. I'm a part of a number of Facebook groups and folks might want some feedback on, a, say, a logo, right? And if you just have one logo, it really is. You get a lot less as opposed to when you say, okay, I got three choices. And then, boy, people just light it up in terms of, I like A better because of this. I like C better because of that. Hey, can you take the colors from B and use it with these icons of A? And so it really does get flowing. And I think maybe if I were to speculate, some of the psychology behind that is, it's like, well, hey, well, if you're not too committed to one of them, then I can tell you what I really think instead of worrying about whether I'm hurting your feelings by unloading on your one option that I hate. That is exactly the mechanism. It's exactly right. And you know, if you keep a few options alive, you also protect yourself from falling in love too much with one of them, right? Mm-hmm. If you put all your eggs in one basket, you're likely going to fall in love with your idea and stop listening to others too. Yeah, I've been guilty of falling in love with my ideas. <laughs> we all have. They're so fun. If everyone else would just realize, Mike, how brilliant they were, then we'd be fine. Okay, so that's a mindset, linear. And how about a second? So second is uh, what I call the benchmarking mindset. In organizations, we are obsessed with the competition. We need to keep abreast of them. And one of the key ways we do that is benchmarking. And I'm not against, I think you do need to keep your eye on your rivals, obviously, and study them. But it turns out that in many cases, unfortunately, studying your rivals closely leads to copycat behavior. What we really want to do when we benchmark is learn from others and adapt those lessons to our own context, to our own culture, our own industry, our own strategy, et cetera. But it turns out we get a lot of copycat behavior. And I kind of pick on Hollywood a little bit in the book and talk about how we get a lot of copycat behavior in Hollywood. Survivors spawned 300 imitators. The the emergence of, of cop shows in the late 60s spawned a million imitators. We see retreads, you know, bringing back the same show again 20 years later. So this happens when we benchmark, we study. And so this mindset of studying the competition leads to what psychologists call fixation. We study something closely. Unfortunately, we fixate. We get a little closed-minded and we copy even though we don't intend to copy. And worse than that, in many cases in business, we copy badly because we don't actually understand what made the success, what were the real causes of the success we see. So we're just superficially really studying them. And so not only do we engage in copycat behavior, but we copy badly and get poor results. So we've got to be able to overcome this. And one trick, I talk about a couple of tricks in the book, but one of them is to study related industries or fields or analogous experiences where because it's not your industry, you're forced to adapt and learn. You can't copy. So an example, if you're a a hospital trying to improve the inpatient experience, you could go study the Four Seasons Hotel. You're not going to copy the Four Seasons because you're not in that business. You're not a luxury hotel, but you might learn something. So you put yourself in learning mode and not in this mindset where you could get fixated. But boy, benchmarking is, there's so much pressure to keep abreast of your rivals, but it really does creativity in so many ways. Okay, understood. I'm intrigued. So you said hospitals to the four seasons. Can you share some additional ideas with regard to benchmarks? I guess in a way you could almost benchmark anything to anything, although you might have mixed results. Like a hospital will benchmark a 
dishwasher manufacturing plant. I guess if, if you're trying to make your processes efficient, that, that may very well spark some cool ideas. But any other kind of uh, excellent, unique uh, stimuli comparison points that have proven fruitful? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, I tell the story of the Reebok pump sneaker. What they did there, it wasn't so much that they went and said, let's go study a bunch of what they did is they brought a bunch of designers in who had experience in healthcare. So they, you know, people who'd worked on things like splints, you know, and other things, and they used what they knew about those things. They drew ideas and inspiration from it, and that helped them build this better sneaker and the pump idea. So this is an example of one where it really was just tapping into people who had some experience in another field and say, hey, can you help us think about how to build a different kind of sneaker? And they were able to take some related knowledge and apply it to this other thing they'd not worked on in the past. It worked. Can you still get pump sneakers? I haven't seen them lately. I don't know. I mean, the story I wrote about, obviously, is from 20, 30 years ago when it first premiered in response to Air Jordan taking a lot of market share away from Reebok. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Reebok, rather than copying the Air Jordan, came up with this pretty creative innovation of the pump, and it took off. You know, it took off. So oh. it's, you know, some people have talked about examples of if, if you're trying to speed up service, if speed really matters, you're running a, a fast food drive through for example, go study race car pit crews because they have to be able to turn something around really fast. Again, it's not to say you're not studying your direct competitors, but you're just also reaching beyond for some new creative ideas in a way. That's good. Well, how about a third mindset there? The third one I talk about is prediction. We, uh, especially in large companies, someone has a cool new idea. We say, how big is the idea? Is it a big market? Basically making people predict. Tell me how big this is going to be. The problem is we're terrible at prediction. There's a lot of data showing that even the best of experts are pretty bad at predicting the future. And so we're putting people in a, when they've got this really nascent idea that's not well formed, we're asking them to predict because the idea is, you know, we're a big company. We're really only going to invest if it's going to move the needle. Mm-hmm. If it's a niche product, you know, we're not interested because we're a $20 billion company and, you know, we're trying to grow 20% a year, 10% a year. We need billions of new revenue and we're not investing in your product if it's going to be a $10, $20 million niche product. The problem with that logic is in the history, the research is clear. In the early stages, people are terrible at predicting how big a product is going to really be. And, and I argue instead that stop worrying about predicting how big it'll be. Go nail a niche. Nail the niche. And then often you could find ways to take that brand and take that experience you've created and broaden it to a broader target market. And the one that I've been following lately actually is Yeti, right? Who started out making this niche product, these these immense, incredible coolers mm-hmm. for really avid fishermen and hunters. An incredibly narrow target market. Not even all fishers and hunters, but really people who are out in the wilderness for a long period of time really need to be able to keep something cold for extended periods of time. Wildly expensive coolers, right? Way cooler than everything else on the market. But what happened? They nailed that niche. And now every kid at every high school is walking around with a Yeti water bottle in their hand. Mm-hmm. In a big corporation, that original business plan would have probably been killed because they would have said, you know, $700 coolers for avid fishing hunter. We're a $20 billion company. That might be a cool idea, but that's not going to move the needle here. And it gets quashed. Yeah. Understood. That's intriguing how one thing can very much lead into many. And so, boy, I guess I I could really see it both ways in terms of you don't want to get involved in something that's a dead end with regard to the maximum revenue opportunity, but you just have no idea where you can take it. 
the data is incredible. I, I cite some studies, for example, in a variety of industries, pharmaceuticals, others, where people's ability to predict how big it's really going to be is just so wildly off. And so what ends up happening is you're asking the, the creative person to either overpromise and then they run the risk of underdelivering, or they are modest in their prediction and you give them no resources because you say it's not worth it. It's tough. Yeah, understood. The next one is uh, the structural mindset. This is the notion that people have come to believe that in this very simplistic formula that says, flat, just change the organizational structure and you'll get more innovation. You'll get more creativity, particularly the flatter the organization, the better. Basically, the, the argument I make is that that is a very simplistic view, that it's not nearly as deterministic, that structure doesn't drive performance in that kind of clear cause-effect manner. In fact, there's some research that shows there's, there's benefits as well as costs to hierarchy. It's not simply something that's always evil. And some level of hierarchy and structure can be important in a company. But more importantly that, what I say is really all the focus on structure is because it's so easy for leaders to move boxes and arrows on an org chart. People have this view that says, I'm trying to drive more performance. I want more creativity. I'll reorganize. And I, I argue it's, it's, they fall back on it because it's an easy solution to reorganize. and But in fact, it often doesn't work. And the fact that, again, the data is littered with, with the pre-orgs that don't lead to higher performance and don't lead to innovation. What I argue is it's the harder stuff, changing the climate of the organization, creating a safe environment where people will speak up, where they were willing to experiment, where they're not afraid of failure, building shared norms, enhancing the intrinsic motivation, building a better culture and climate is really where you're going to drive creativity not moving boxes and arrows, but the boxes and arrows get a disproportionate amount of the attention from top leaders often. Right. And this notion of the climate and, you know, the, the psychological safety and ability to speak up is come up again and again. And so I, I'd love your take on what are some of the, the top do's and don'ts for if you're the individual contributor or the manager of a team to shift that climate in some good ways. One of the biggest things I think that you can do as a leader is that you can show some vulnerability yourself. That If you're willing to sort of acknowledge what you don't know about a topic, acknowledge where you might have failed in the past, if you show a little bit of humility and vulnerability, people get a lot more comfortable speaking up. If you come across as infallible, right, if all you do is talk about your success, it's unlikely you're going to create a safe climate where people are willing to speak up. But also making sure you exercise some restraint. Don't put your ideas out there first. Ask some of the junior people who might be hesitant. Ask them to speak first. Bring their ideas out before you disclose what your thoughts are. Give people a little room, right, to generate their own ideas. There's, these are the kind of things that's important to do. And then if somebody is bold enough, courageous enough to speak up, you know, applaud them, celebrate it, welcome it. Even if you don't agree, doesn't mean you have to do what they said, but you can express your appreciation for diverse ideas, right? And talk about how important it is you get those. And so it's not a one-off. And then, of course, the don'ts, the most important thing is don't shoot the messenger when someone comes to you with an idea you don't like or tells you some bad news. Because you only have to do that once and you've tarnished your reputation as a leader for a long time and destroyed any kind of climate you've been trying to create. Understood. Okay. The next one. So the next one is what I call the focus mindset. So we have lots of companies where the mindset is starts out correct, which is, boy, multitasking is getting in the way. Right? And it's true. We don't multitask well. The research is clear. So what we must do is focus. So we'll create an innovation hub or we'll create a war room and we'll put a team in there and we'll strip away their duties and just ask them to focus intently. 
because you know that's the way for us to get some breakthrough solutions. And I think the image I talk about it, the image in people's head is of a of a rock band holed up on a mountaintop or in a castle or in the basement somewhere, isolated from everybody, recording this incredible revolutionary album. And I actually talk about how U2, the Irish rock band led by Bono, when they uh, recorded The Unforgettable Fire, they actually went off to Slane Castle in Ireland and isolated themselves, living there, recording there, eating there, sleeping there. And the idea was to kind of get away and really focus and, and really experiment with a new musical style. But actually, the research shows and, and that, in fact, breakthrough solutions often come about not through simply intense focus, but through oscillating, if you will, between periods of intense focus and occasionally some unfocus, if you will. Sometimes you need to get some distance from a problem to really be more creative. Mark Twain once said, when the tank runs dry, that's when I leave the manuscript, put it away for a bit so as I can go and develop some new ideas. And he would go off and do some other things. And this runs counter to sort of the notion, I think a lot of companies, a lot of people have begun to believe, well, multitasking is bad and it is bad. I'm not talking about multitasking. I'm talking about periods of intense focus and then intentionally stepping away in some way and gaining some distance from a problem. Okay. I'm intrigued then. What are some of the best ways to step away? So it turns out, you know, one of the ways that's really interesting is uh, being able to imagine someone else facing the same problem or imagine yourself as someone else. So role-playing the competition or role-playing how someone with different functional expertise would face the same problem turns out to be really effective in doing this. So we call that social. Psychologists call this social distance. Getting out of your own skin and getting in someone else's shoes in a way or walking a mile in your customer's shoes. Example I give is of a, an IDEO designer who, in designing a new wing in a hospital, didn't just interview patients. He actually pretended to be a patient and faked a foot injury and checked himself into the ER and then experienced the hospital as a patient. And by stepping into the patient's shoes in that way, sparked all kinds of new ideas. Another one is a temporal distance, sort of imagining yourself in the future, not today, and you're stepping out of the moment can help you be more creative. And Amazon actually kind of does this. They've kind of invented time travel, if you will. What they do is they ask teams at AWS, which is their cloud business, and they're working on a new product or service. They ask them to imagine when this thing would be. They haven't started yet. They're just kind of beginning to work on the idea. They say, imagine you're done and you're rolling it out. What will the press release look like? And they actually write the press release. And then they work backward, they call it, back to today to kind of develop their idea. And imagining themselves out there, they have to imagine what need are we solving for the customer? What are we saying to the customer? What is this about? What's the value we're creating? Now let's go make this work to deliver that. Pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. And I think that the, we've talked a little bit about, some have called it red team thinking or a time machine approach, and that sometimes that could really help you anticipate obstacles in in a great way. Like, hey, let's go back in time and imagine we have a real mess on our hands. Like, what happened? It's like, oh, well, we, we didn't check in with so-and-so. It's like, okay, well, let's make sure we check in with so-and-so. So it can work well when you're imagining an exciting positive future or a you know dystopian uh, worst case scenario future. The name is pre-mortem. Gary Klein coined the term where you imagine that what we're going to do today is going to fail. What does that future scenario look like. And it's exactly right, Pete. It can indeed spark some new ideas and really help you. 
I like that. Cool. All right. Then we've got uh, five mindsets down, uh, one to go. Last one is the naysayer mindset. We're all familiar with this. Plenty of naysayers and organizations who can always find the reason why a new idea won't work rather than asking, why might it work? And what I talk about is, in fact, the difference between a constructive devil's advocate and a dysfunctional naysayer. See, devil's advocates can be good for organizations. They can help sharpen our thinking. But when they become the chronic naysayer, then we we tune them out. They become a broken record and they're not very effective for us. So I basically argue that what we really need is constructive devil's advocates, not dysfunctional naysayers. And the constructive devil's advocates are people who, first of all, don't weigh in too early with their criticism. They give ideas room to breathe. They let people generate some options before they start attacking them. They practice what in improv comedy we call yes and rather than yeah, but. They build on ideas rather than saying, yeah, but that will never work, or yeah, but we don't have the resources to do that, or yeah, but the boss will never go for that. And they ask questions more than they pound the table and put forth their own plan. They're really teaching more by the Socratic method rather than lecturing at people about what's wrong with their ideas. So if we can make that shift, I think we can really help spark creativity. But unfortunately, we've all heard the broken records, right? We've all had the the naysayers get in the way in, in our organizations at times. Well, so I'm intrigued then, what is the appropriate time and place and approach to provide the the critiques, the feedback, and, and the concerns about the genuine shortcomings of an idea? Yeah, so my earlier work, I talk a lot about the value of constructive conflict and debate. So I'm a big believer in conflict debate, but I'm a believer that in the early stage when you're doing alternative generation, when you're trying to generate a series of options, That's where you've got to keep the devil's advocate at bay. Once you've got a set of options, then it's time to critique those options, right? And then it is time to probe the assumptions and the like. But we've got to do it in a constructive way. It can't just be why those ideas won't work. It's got to be asking also, how might we alter those ideas to make them work, right? So we've got to have that positive spin, not just the negative spin of let's explain all the reasons why that'll never solve our problem. Because you really beat people down if all you do is poke holes, right? So... It's important. And also the other job of that devil's advocate is not just to tell me what's wrong, but also say, okay, so if these options are not attractive, then help the group generate some new ones and ask some questions and probe a little. And so it's not just about tearing down the plan that's on the table. It's about saying to the group, hey, here's another way of thinking of this that might help us generate some new options. Or maybe the devil's advocate can help the group reframe the problem at times, which can be really helpful. All right. I like it. So, Mike, I'd love to get your take. If you, uh, right here, right now, needed to generate a bundle of options, what would be some of the top tactical things you'd do to spark some stuff right away? Well, one thing is I'm a big believer in, I think, empathy. Get out there and find ways to empathize with the customer, to really stand in their shoes. Get out of your own shoes. Go somehow stand in their shoes in some way to really alter your perspective. I think that's so important. I think look for related fields and industries or analogous experiences for inspiration. That's really important too as well. I think that can help generate some new ideas. But the other one I want to share with you, Pete, is one that I really like. Is uh, And I thought of this as I was studying the company Planet Fitness. Pete, I don't know if you belong to a fitness center or if you follow the industry at all, but it's a terrible, it's a very unprofitable industry, it turns out. It's just really unprofitable, right? It's really tough for a variety of reasons. Well, and I'm just thinking about all the gyms. That's just so depressing because because gyms already, you know, like the majority of their, you know, members, subscribers, like don't actually use it very much. So even with all of the money they're earning from people who don't show up and use it, yeah, that's a bummer. 
there's a whole lot of reasons for that. Part of the reason is there's no barriers to entry, right? Anybody can open a gym, and they do all the time. So there's always competition. Customers are incredibly fickle. You know, one year they're obsessed with SoulCycle. Now they're obsessed with Orange Theory. Two years from now, they'll be obsessed with the next big thing, and that's another problem. So this could be a longer conversation of this very strange industry. But what's interesting about Planet Fitness is if you watch their commercials, they mock the bodybuilders, right? Right. It's the judgment-free zone. And what their CEO says is that their competition is they're not going after the 20% of people that go to their competitors. They want the 80% of people who've never belonged to a gym. And he says, we don't think about it as who our competitors are. They think instead about who their substitutes are. And a substitute is, what, what's the alternative to joining a fitness center? It's working out at home. Yeah, just do it yourself. But he defines the substitutes much more broadly. And this is a cool technique. He says, wait, is it really just working out at home? Or is it the movie theater and Chili's and Uno's? Is it these other things? That sounds so nice right now, Mike. <laughs> They're a hell of a lot more enjoyable than going to the gym, Pete, right? So how to convince people to do something that for many of them doesn't appear to be very enjoyable? They're choosing these other more enjoyable experiences. So what could we do to create an environment that might attract these people? What a cool idea, right? Define your substitutes broadly. And think about, so, you know, Southwest Airlines. Herb Kelleher used to say, my competition isn't the other airlines. My competition is the automobile. How do I create an airline where I can fly someone from Austin to Dallas cheaper than they can drive? Aha, mm-hmm. pretty cool. So this idea of thinking about your substitutes, not just your competitors, I think it's a pretty cool idea for sparking some creative ideas in, in a company. Beautiful. Thank you. Mike, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. No, I, I think this has been a great conversation. I, I would just say that one of the things we all have to overcome, I use this example. Uh, it's actually not in the book. It's one I've begun to use in presentations. And I was sparked by this because with my kids, we were watching the movie mm-hmm. Matilda. So if you've watched the movie Matilda, or if you've read the book by Roald Dahl, the great book, you know that there's this mean headmistress Miss Trunchbull. And I found this picture of her in her classroom, and she's got this set of rules, sit still, be quiet, etc. And I think in some ways, companies have emulated the mean headmistress. We've sort of created environments where we say we want creativity, but we're really looking for compliance and conformity. Mm-hmm. And then we're shocked when we don't get creative ideas and innovation. And so I kind of think we need to think back and go, huh, think of ourselves as, as some of our favorite teachers. And not the headmistress, the mean headmistress, and say, hmm, what kind of environment do I want to create that sparks the intellectual curiosity of my employees rather than asks for strict compliance and conformity? Uh Just a parting thought maybe for people to think about in terms of creativity. Lovely. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? If you have a yes man working for you, one of you is redundant. It's a quote from Barry Rand, who sadly just died this year, longtime CEO of AARP and Avis Rental Car. Boy, is it right on the money. You got to have somebody who's willing to tell you that you're all wet sometimes. Uh, That's hard to hear, but just surround yourself with people who agree with you. It's not very effective. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? One of the early things I read in graduate school that I still found to be some of the most influential work was Irving Janice's great work on groupthink. Mm-hmm. I just think that 
you know, and that was not experimental studies. He did do some other kinds of studies, but as he wrote these great case studies of very famous uh, historical decisions and looked uh, sadly at how uh, groupthink had led to some really flawed choices. And uh, I always found that to be you know, pretty incredible to see. On the experimental side, not on the experimental side, but on the more modern side, we mentioned psychological safety. I've had the privilege of getting to work with Amy Edmondson a few times, and Amy's work on psychological safety is just top rate. I mean, she really has had a tremendous impact in fields like healthcare, getting to really to rethink the climate of hospitals, right? By studying them closely, doing many studies in healthcare, showing how having a climate where people fear speaking up can literally cost lives. Right. Thank you. Tell me, how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. I love podcasts, Pete. How's that? That's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) I spend a lot of time when I'm on flights. This is when I read, you know, and I read voraciously. I mean, I'm a professor. That's what we do. Podcasts have been great in terms of using my commute more efficiently to hear, you know, new ideas. I love doing that, right? It's been really great. But I think the other thing, my job as a professor, that what I benefit from in many ways, which I think business leaders could benefit from is I get to spend my days around 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. While they can be a real pain in the butt sometimes, they give you new perspective. They look at the world differently. And I sometimes think it'd be really good for CEOs to go spend some time with their frontline employees who are 22, 23, 24, get some fresh perspective. They know things that 60-year-olds don't know. They look at the world differently. I have this great tool at my disposal, which is I get to talk to 20-year-olds all the time. And uh, I don't think we should you know, mistake that. There's some real benefit to that. And how about a favorite habit? I am a coffee addict, Pete. Oh my goodness. I gave up caffeine many years ago, but I just love coffee as a routine in the morning. So I've made the folks at Starbucks very wealthy, I think, because uh, I do enjoy my coffee. It's a great habit. Is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with your students or readers? I tell my students this little anecdote that my father uh, used to share. My dad was an immigrant from Italy. He's 91 now. When we were young, he used to say that he came to America to provide us greater opportunity and, and education being the avenue to get there. And he was going to do whatever it took, work as hard as he could to give us those educational opportunities. And we didn't have to pay him back. He said, we just had to return home and knock with our feet someday. And I didn't really know what that meant. What he meant, and which I learned over time, was that our arms should be full such that we had to knock with our feet. And at first, our arms had to be full because we were carrying a loaf of bread or a bottle of wine to go share with him. And later, it had to be because we were carrying our children to go share with him. And if we knocked with our feet, that's all the gratitude that we needed to express. That's all we needed to give back to him. And I tell my students this anecdote, and I tell them that there's actually research that says, you know, expressing gratitude can be a powerful, positive thing for people. And not to forget to do that. And it's easy to kind of get so busy that you don't take enough time to do that. Anyway, knocking with your feet is my favorite little nugget I like to share with my students. And many of them remember that years later. It's unbelievable. And I I had a student just a short time ago show up at my office door and kick it with his feet. And he had a bottle of wine for me. I was like blown away. Awesome. That's a good setup you got there with the (laughs) people coming and bringing you wine. (laughs) Yeah. How about that? I didn't really think about it that way, but it's worked out okay. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Sure. So they can visit my website at www.professormichaelroberto.com or I'm on Twitter at Michael A. Roberto. It's a great way to to get in touch as well. And uh, they certainly can drop me a line either via the website or directly through Twitter. Uh, I'd love to interact with readers and uh, hear their questions, hear their comments and feedback. And I promise to get back to people as much as I can. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? 
Boy, if I could say one thing about this, I mean, I'm fortunate in that I do something I love, right? Getting up and teaching every day is a, something I really love. But the one thing I would say is uh, I have this little quote on my, my bookshelf in my office, and it's in Italian. It's, it says, Ancora imparo. And it's uh, purportedly said by Michelangelo, you know, centuries ago. And it means I am still learning. And uh, I think that's, I don't think I need to say anything more. I think the meaning is evident, but I look at it every day. Beautiful. Mike, this has been a lot of fun. I wish you the best with your unlocked creativity and students and all you're up to. Thanks, Pete. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate it. I really dug Michael's take on the linear mindset in particular, because I'm a student of decision-making. I teach it, I train on it. I'm always trying to sharpen my own decision-making. And I often think of my Amazon.com order history as really the log of how effective I've been in decision-making and with regard to, okay, is that item that I ordered there a winner? Do I love it? Do I need to return it? Do I wish I had returned it, but I was a little bit too slow? And, and so sometimes I just really dislike returning things. And, and I sometimes regard that as a failure in decision-making. Had I only anticipated or asked the right question or done some more research or whatever, that I wouldn't have to exert this effort associated with making the return. And I'm always scared that Amazon's going to like kick me off of using their Prime services. I don't know. I've heard a horror story or two about folks who had too many returns and Amazon said, okay, now you're, you're abusing the system. You can't do that. I was like, oh, how many returns is too many returns? Am I at risk? And I don't know. And oh, my printer is not quite functioning right now as I've tried to print this label, even though I got some convenient software that's made it a lot easier. Yeah, whatever. I get into that. But Michael has a superior perspective that is shared by my wife, which is, okay, hey, we bought this thing and didn't quite work out, but we learned some really useful stuff associated with, oh, make sure the cord is long enough or oh make sure that the little baby can't you know bonk himself on the head with it or, or whatever and so she appreciates those learnings and i'm coming around slowly but surely to appreciate those and not regard it as a failure in decision making but it's like nope this is an iteration and maybe it's conceivably possible that if i had a little bit more foresight and a little bit more research i would have gotten a better option the first time around but no need to beat yourself up over it we learned something we're going to iterate we're going to get some better for the next time. And I think that's all the more applicable when the stakes are higher in terms of, do you feel like an idiot because you proposed something that didn't quite work out? No need, no need. Nay, indeed, you want to just do the learning associated with that experience and iterate and make it all the better the next time. And, and hopefully you won't beat yourself up the way I sometimes have beaten myself up on failed Amazon purchases. And you have a supportive culture that also recognizes that's kind of the price of innovation is that you got to make some mistakes to get to the gold and it's all good. So that's a reminder for myself, just as much as anyone in an organization that's worried about getting the quote wrong answer. Iteration is just part of the game. Anyway, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we referenced, they're over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F404. I hope you'll push subscribe if you haven't already. Our next guest is John Gordon. He's got some great perspectives on positivity in your team, how to foster it, cultivate it, nurture it, get more of it, enjoy it, and the benefits of it. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.